Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Last week we turned our attention to this second section of Romans chapter 8. After Paul had offered to us in the first eight verses... Uh, this important uh, restatement of the work of the gospel in light of the work of the Spirit, Paul then turns his attention to what is a critical topic for believers, and that is the assurance of our salvation. We, we noted last week how the idea of assurance can be a tricky thing. It can be hard to come by. We spend a lot of time in our lives trying to shore up areas that we think are potentially weak to problems. And the flip side then of assurance, the, the reason we do that, it could be a couple of issues. One, there, there could be anxiety, but, but there's another word that I think we often associate with what I would say is the other side of assurance. And that's doubt. I, I don't need a raise of hands here. My guess is all of us would raise them. Have you ever had a bout with doubt? I didn't mean that to rhyme, that just came out, all right? Have you ever had a situation where doubt creeped in, either on something small or something significant, right? I mean, there's a lot of areas in life where we experience doubt. And we could experience doubt to various degrees, but whenever it hits, it's always troubling. We may face doubt in regard to a job situation. Maybe we worry, did I take the right job? Maybe we worry, did I do the right thing at my job? And, and that can create doubt. We, we find doubt in, in our financial security or insecurity, depending on where you may be. We ask ourselves, did we, are we doing the right thing with our money? Are we saving enough? Are we doing the right thing with debt? We, we can have doubt. Boy, it becomes even more serious when you then introduce doubt into relationships, relationships of all kinds, uh, doubt from something as serious as a doubt about a marriage relationship. Is this going to work? Can we continue in this kind of environment to, to relationships with, with maybe parents or parents to children or maybe other family members or, or neighbors or co-workers or, heaven forbid, church members, doubt can enter in. 
Uh, but obviously, the, the form that probably takes center stage, at least on a Sunday morning and given the text that we just read, there can be times when as believers in Jesus Christ, and perhaps it takes us unaware, we can find ourselves struggling with doubt over our salvation. Now, that can happen in varying degrees, perhaps. Sometimes it can, eat, it can reach a really extreme form for folks. Maybe it can be kind of a nagging question that somebody may ask at various times in their Christian walk. I will tell you just kind of anecdotally, right, as a pastor and what I see happen, folks who often, after 20 years of doing this, who, who want to meet with me, I'll tell you this is a top five on the list of why people may want to come to my office right, the principal, I mean the pastor's office, right, why they may want to come and, and speak to me and, uh, and have some issue, often it is this. And, I, and I've had people, I mean, deeply distraught, pastor, I need help, I don't think I'm even saved. Sometimes this doubt is introduced because somebody is engaged in some kind of sin, maybe even what we would label extreme forms of sin. For others, there, there may be some particular habit, sinful habit that, that seems to, to plague you and has maybe plagued you for years. For others, there may be attitude issues. Maybe, maybe it's an ongoing struggle with, with anger. Maybe it's issues with unforgiveness. Still others may wonder, where did the zeal go? had folks who look back at, at a day when they were zealous and passionate for the things of God, and yet now, eh, just seems to not have the same fire that it had before. So people ask the question, well, am I saved? Am I really a believer? And so Paul's words here are critical. And, and I've, I've said this before, and this is a major feature of a doctrine of our church, that the work of the gospel is such a complete work and is void of my work. In other words, it is such a thorough and complete work of God and His sovereign grace and the work of the Spirit. The gospel is so thorough that not only does it save me, but it secures me forever. I didn't do anything to save myself. All right, It wasn't my work or effort. And so my work and effort cannot undo this thing. All right, so how do we have, though, this assurance? Okay, Pastor, what, what, is, what, do I, what do I need in order to have some kind of confidence, assurance, dare we say guarantee? Is there a guarantee of my salvation? Yes. Yes, there is. And in fact, that very word is used about what we started talking about last week, and that while there could be a lot of ways to answer the question, how do I know that I'm saved? How can I, how can I gain an assurance of salvation there could be a number of answers, and we might slip into some of those you know, uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks as we continue in this particular part of Romans 8. But no greater sign of salvation exists than the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when we say, can we have a guarantee that we're saved? Well, yes, because Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. So, yes. I can be guaranteed, and in fact, this is what Paul does. Paul shows us how the work of the Spirit, a part, an important part of the work of the Spirit, is to assure me 
of my salvation. So how does that happen? Well, last week we looked at the first one, and that is, well, I know that I'm a believer because the Spirit indwells me. He indwells me. He lives inside of me. Well, how do I know the Spirit lives inside of me? Because I'm a believer. Some of you hate that argument, don't you? Oh, I mean, it drives you nuts because you say it's circular. Well, yeah, I get it. I understand. Okay, don't worry. I'm going to give some of you more evidentialist types. Don't worry. We're going to get to more stuff like that. But for now, at its theological core, you notice how Paul began last week in verses 9 through 11 to say very clearly and very simply, those who, in essence, confess faith in Christ do so because they are of the Spirit. In other words, my salvation, listen to this, my salvation does not result in the Spirit coming to me. My salvation is a result of the Spirit first working in me. Now, you may have to write that one down. You may think, I don't don't think that's any different. All right, well, if you kind of look at the wording there, but it's critical, and that's what we mentioned last week, because the work of salvation involves first the Spirit convincing me of my sin, convicting me of the truth of the gospel, giving me life, bringing me back from the dead spiritually to life, enabling me to place my faith in Christ. This is all the work of the Spirit of God. And so, yes, the presence of the Spirit is a sign of salvation. All right, number two. The second issue, and the one that we're going to take a few minutes and look at this morning, and it's, it's a fitting topic as then we move toward taking the elements of the Lord's Supper together. Because really part of the reason why I think the church can take great encouragement from the elements of the Lord's Supper is because this, this just continues to undergird. When Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, remembrance of what? Remembrance just of this guy who lived 2,000 years ago who did something really, really great? No. This one and only one who made salvation possible for me. And so when we take of the bread, when we drink of the cup, that this, this, should be, this should be a physical encouragement to us as we taste the bread and we taste of the juice and we, we recognize that this is telling me about the body and blood of Christ this work of Jesus on my behalf, in my place, and that all this should be a confirmation. And that, in fact, fundamentally speaking, the reason why I can even make such a confession of faith is because of the Spirit in me. But notice how Paul, though, continues to describe then this work of the Spirit, the Spirit that empowers us. And this starts to answer the question, to kind of work our way out of what is the original argument that, you know, folks get, you know, that sounds like circular argument, though, well, we don't want to get into that, but I'll tell you, I can tell you individually why it's technically not. Nonetheless, all right, uh, this, this, is, uh, this is what can uh, be a concern to folks, but Paul doesn't leave us there. Paul does say, well, there's real evidence that the Spirit is in you. And notice how he sets this up, verse 12. Therefore, brethren... By the way, the word therefore, some translations have the word so then. And we've noted the word therefore. It's one of Paul's favorites. Uh, it, it trips us off to stuff Paul's doing. In this case, Paul is using the word therefore as a so then to connect the next few verses with what immediately preceded it. 
So when he talks about the Spirit being in you, the Spirit dwelling in you, now he's going to draw another conclusion from that. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Now what a fascinating way Paul decides to put this. He could have said, therefore, brethren, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But the way the text reads, he begins by making this statement, therefore, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. We, we are debtors not to, to live according to the flesh. Again, this is, this is all a, a, a sum, summation, conclusion, a natural conclusion drawn from what he's just said. The Spirit of God has given me life. If the Spirit of God lives in me as a result of the gospel, then I'm under no obligation to live under the rule, the reign, and the tyranny of sin. I'm not obligated to it. The word debtor. It's kind of it's a fairly graphic word, right? It's a word that we understand. And given the book of Romans often uses this kind of accounting language to talk about salvation, to talk about being a debtor. We know that language, right? If someone is in debt, again, we can use the financial example, and we are all well aware of this, whether it's you know, a credit card or a home loan or a car loan or student loan or Maybe you checked off all four of those boxes, all right? Okay, I know some folks are in that kind of situation. If you are a debtor, what, do you, what does that mean? You owe something. And let me ask you this. Are there ramifications if you decide to no longer obligate yourself to those debts? There are ramifications, right? Some of them quite serious if you decide. Let, let's, take, let's take another example. This, we're in the tax season. You're thinking, wow, preacher, you've brought up a lot of bad stuff so far this morning, all right? Let's wiggle our way out of this. Well, the good news is we'll finish on the Lord's Supper. So, I can say what I want. You remember the last thing we talk about anyway. Okay, so, tax season. What is tax season but our obligation, right? Perhaps not quite the same as debt, but similar. If you decide to free yourself of your tax obligations, are there consequences for said decision? Yes. Yes, there are, right? Big ones, perhaps, depending on how much you decided to no longer obligate yourself for, right? Okay? In other words, we understand the idea of obligation. But Paul begins by making a negative statement that's really a positive idea and vice versa. We are debtors not to the flesh. What does this mean, by the way? The opposite is true. Those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to this, church. I know we've talked about this kind of thing, but I'm telling you, when it comes to sharing the gospel and, and making it clear what we believe about Christ and the gospel and the means of salvation, you need to understand this. Every person who does not confess faith in Christ and Christ alone is obligated to the flesh. 
in debt to it. That person has no choice but to sin. And here's what I want to help you kind of get out of your mind. Because a lot of those folks may be good folk. You may even describe them as salt of the earth folk. People that give you the shirt off their back folk. You give every shirt you own off of your back to somebody else. Guess what that does not do? Pay your obligation to sin. It does not deal with your debt problem. When Paul says we're no longer debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, he's tying right in with what he's just said. Because of the presence of the Spirit, you no longer are obligated to the flesh. Not only are you no longer obligated to live according to the rules and regulations of the flesh, you are no longer bound by its curse. And that is, that's in fact what we'll celebrate here in a few minutes. I say celebrate it as a solemn moment. But for us... Wow, it should cause real praise in our hearts for what Christ has done for us. Because Christ paid the debt. In other words, when it says that, so, therefore we are, we are debtors, not to the flesh. There was a debt paid, and we're no longer obligated to pay it. Christ did it for us. Therefore, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then notice this warning, verse 13. This is a tricky one. But we need to understand, I think, what Paul's doing here. He's trying to impress upon us the strength of sin. For if you live according to the flesh, if your way of life, if your worldview, if all of the elements of how you approach life, Put all those words beside it, all right? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, so you read that and you think, if, if you've been listening, and I won't tell you if I can tell if you're listening or not, all right? But if you're listening, you think, that's kind of the opposite of what you just said, preacher man. You can read that again, pastor. All right, I know English. It just said, if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you're going to live. You know what that sounds like to me, preacher? It sounds like to me that if I do this work and effort to put to death sin in my life, then I'll live. Now, this is... This is most definitely not what the verse means. It can't mean that. Because if it does mean that, then wow, Paul is a terrible writer, right? And the Spirit is a terrible inspirer. It's not a word, but anyway, take it. All right, so the Spirit's bad at inspiration. Paul then is bad at writing it down. And that, that, means, that means that he can't remember what he just wrote, right? So this is not what he means. Keep in mind something I said last week. The word if for Paul really is used as a literary device to make an argument, to set up contrasts, and has more of the weight of a sense than an if. 
Here's what he's saying. If your course of life is such that it is characterized by the things of the world, okay, in other words, by the flesh, that doesn't always mean the worst sins imaginable. It could include that. But anybody who's not living under and in submission to the gospel is by default living according to their flesh. Even if they're doing really good things for people, all right? They're still living according to their flesh. By the way, a works-based form of salvation is the essence of living according to the flesh. Because you are telling God in your arrogance and pride that what you do, He has to accept. So it doesn't sound all that good now, does it? If you and your arrogance are saying to God, this is what you need to accept as good works. Wow, that sounds really bad. Sounds like a really bad thing to say to God. And I know we can say bad things to God, but that's got to be up there at the top of the list. So, so in, in other words, anybody who is not living in submission to the gospel is living according to the flesh, selfishness, own desires, whatever they may be, and however that may be expressed. But the person who is living by the Spirit, according to everything that Paul has said, this is the one who's now been transformed by that Spirit. And because of that, since now we have the Spirit and are able to put to death the things of the flesh. We identify ourselves as those who have life. This is what Paul means by verse 13. However, we we should not lessen the force of this. Verse 13 should disturb us. It should cause a bit of disturbing questions in our hearts. There's nothing wrong with this, by the way, to ask. Especially when I see signs of the flesh pop up in my life. I need to ask, is, is, is what's going on in me and, and my obedience to the gospel, is that indeed true? Am I living in faithfulness and obedience to this gospel? Because what Paul is saying here, another sign of salvation, is that believers in general are living in a way that is consistent with the Spirit. In a way that is putting to death the deeds of the flesh, because I'm no longer obligated to live by them, because I'm now in the Spirit and have life, I now can live in a way that's inconsistent with the flesh and consistent with the Spirit. And so then he he adds to this in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Many are led by the Spirit of God. These are sons. So, these who are empowered to put to death the deeds of the flesh. These who are led by Him. And this doesn't mean like personal guidance kinds of leading. Like, you know, this idea of the Spirit impressing upon something upon me. It's not what He means here. He means those who are following. Those who are, those who are led by the Spirit. Empowered, enabled by the Spirit. These are the ones that can rest in their confidence. They can can say they are sons of God. Again, this this is the blessed hope of the gospel. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ are called sons of God. Now, here's what I'm going to do in a couple of weeks. There's a few things. We're not going to come close to getting to the seven points that are in that outline. All right, We're not going to get to any more of it. That's a positive thing I've just said, right? I mean, some of you are like, whoo, because I see this down here. It's got seven points, and then I'm going to add this. I now have added an eighth one to that, all right? And you're thinking, oh, man, wow, what is this guy doing? He does this all the time. Why does he do this? He tells us he's been doing it for 20 years. Why can't he get a sermon in on Sunday morning? All right, so 
I don't know. Do you all love me anyway? You have to. The Bible says so. Okay, so um, this is what we'll get to. Now, next week, Easter Sunday, we'll, we'll talk about the resurrection. And then following that, we'll jump back into this because I'm going to give you eight ways, eight actions you can engage in that help you cooperate with the work of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In other words, to begin thinking more carefully, what does this look like? What does this really look like? If I'm empowered by the Spirit, then what does this look like in my life? Because there are definite signs. There are definite pieces. You know, there's, a, there's fruit that is demonstrated. And that may ring a bell with you, right? There's definite fruit that is demonstrated that shows me whether or not the Spirit is actually empowering me. And we'll, we'll try and work our way through this a bit more carefully. And then we're going to talk more then about what that means when Paul says we are sons of God, he's going to change the language then and talk, call us children. But in verse 14, he begins by calling us all. Men and women, he calls us all sons. Now I can sense it. Preacher, I am no son. If I'm a woman, I'm a daughter. Okay? You're just going to have to trust me. You want to be here in two weeks. We're going to unpack that. And we're going to unpack why, in fact, listen, you, you ready for this? In Paul's day, you don't hear this out, out in the world today. Did you know that in Paul's day, he probably would have been labeled a feminist for using such a phrase about women? Shocking, right? In other words, you're thinking, well, today's world, wow, there'd be a whole Twitter hashtag just devoted to him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ignore Paul now. Hashtag. Yeah, I mean, there would be a whole thing about it. But in fact, Paul's words here are profound. And ladies, they are profound to you. Something unheard of in the Roman world. Greek Roman world. All right, Unheard of what Paul does here with this language. So you'll have to get to that uh, with us then in, in a couple of weeks. But for now, understand what Paul is doing then with this particular encouragement to us. I know that I'm a believer because the Spirit dwells in me. I know the Spirit dwells in me because I'm a believer. All right, I know it's frustrating, but that's what the text really means. In other words, the means by which I am brought to saving faith is a work of the Spirit. Not that folks can't give an, uh, an, uh, an ingenuine kind of confession, but that's at least the beginning point. To trust in Christ is a work of the Spirit. And then that goes even further but now, now that I have the Spirit in me, now I've got this promise of, uh, of empowerment, the ability to live in faith and obedience to the work of the gospel in my life. It is evidence of life in me. And so when I look at my life, do I see evidence of the Spirit's empowerment? Do I see wise decisions? I, I know you look at your life and you still see sin. I get that. But, but understand this, church. My guess is, for every sin you commit, you've probably got... Ten examples of faithfulness, but what is it that sticks in your crawl? Sin, right? I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay it. It could be a bad thing. I'm just saying, be mindful, though. The ways in which your life is really indicative, in general, of, of a biblical, godly, spirit-empowered worldview. And if that is true in your life, then be assured by that. Be assured. This means the Spirit is in you. And so now as we take an opportunity to share these elements together, to gather around the Lord's table to do what has been commanded to us by Christ Himself, uh, we have this opportunity to again see the source, the very source of why we can have 
such confidence in our salvation. It, it comes to us because of the work of Christ. What Jesus has done for us. And so it's fitting that this time now turns our attention to the elements. To the taking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Understanding these elements are not the means of grace. But they are a reminder to us of the means of grace. And that being Christ alone and the work of the Spirit in us. And so as you eat and as you drink, let it be a, be a time of personal confession. An opportunity to bow before this Savior. To confess there are times that though you are not obligated to the flesh, sometimes you do still live according to its principles. This be an opportunity that you thank God for what has been done for you. That one has paid your debt so that you no longer are indebted to the sin and its curse over your life. 